Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Seth Payne, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Wonderful. Glad to have you on. My listeners uh, may not uh, know this unless they listen to the episode about my trip out to Utah, but when I was at the FAIR conference, you were one of the uh, presenters there. You did a presentation on a paper that you wrote called Pastoral Apologetics, and we're going to get into that. I thought the paper was was wonderful, touched on a lot of issues of faith crisis that struck home to me, and I think will strike strike home to many of the people who listen to this podcast. But I want to start off this way. Would you mind just sharing a little bit about who you are so that my listeners can get a feel for you? Sure, ab- absolutely. So um, I was uh, I was raised in the church. Um, I was adopted as a as an infant by a wonderful um, by a wonderful mom and dad, uh, and sealed to them in the temple. Um, you know, when I was just just a young young baby, uh, and you know, so I was raised in the church. And of course, I look look at my heritage and uh, my family. Um, you know, the Paines and the Romneys are, of course, are, are two families that have been LDS for quite a while. So I was, I was raised with, uh, with that, that very rich heritage, um, and with stories being told about the incredible faith of my, uh, ancestors, what they did, uh, some of the struggles they went through and whatnot. And, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, my, my dad, my adoptive dad, um, who, of course, to me, there's no difference between, you know, adoptive or whatnot. They're my mom and dad. Um, you know, my dad was a, was a very good man. Um, he was called as a bishop in his late 20s. And when uh, I was born, he was uh, he had been serving as stake president um, for I'm not sure how long. Maybe it was a year, maybe maybe a little less. Uh, he was 34 years old at the time. Um, and unfortunately, when I was two years old, he had a sudden heart attack when he was out jogging one day oh. and, uh, and passed away. So that left my mom with, uh, with five uh, kids uh, at age 32 to take care of all by herself. But 
Um, one thing that always stuck with me growing up was that even though my father had passed away, uh, he always served as a shining example of what it meant to be a good man, right? No, so, so not Mormon, not what I, just a good man. I mean, my mom would talk about, um, how kind and patient and, and helpful he was, uh, when she was going through struggles with trying to raise five kids and, and all those different things. So even though he passed on, um, he has always, uh, you know, remained a big influence in my life. And I think that this is true of my other siblings as well. In fact, I know it's true of, of, uh, of my other siblings as well. So, um, you know, again, this is just to underscore, I come from, I come from a, a family with, with a, a long history in Mormonism. And um, I think what I'm, what I'm most thankful for is that I come from a family of very good examples. So, uh, you know, just very good people, very kind-hearted, Christ-like, uh, people. And being raised with those stories and, and of course, uh, reading some of their journals. And even to this day, when we get together as a family, we talk about, you know, dad or, or great-grandpa doing this. Um, that's always served to be a, a really, uh, good example for me. So, uh, so yeah, when I when I when I look back there, I mean that that's that's kind of the, the Mormon uh culture I was born into and, and raised with and um I, I served a mission uh when I was uh, nineteen. I went to the Tempe, Arizona mission, uh graduated from BYU in two thousand and four. Um so I kinda did the Mormon thing. Um and uh yeah, so so I kinda I'm I kinda come from those old pioneer Mormon stock and, and uh my family's been LDS for quite a while, like I mentioned. So that's that's a little background on me. Excellent. You you talk about how you have kind of this standard Mormon background, obviously with the exception of your father passing away when you were quite young. And uh, I always hate hearing tragedies like that. Uh, but it sounds like your mother did a good job kind of picking up the reins from there and, and, and raising a, a good family. And, and so I, I kind of wanted to think of it this way. You You talk about having this kind of standard narrative as far as culture goes. And in terms of the experiences you had uh, graduate from BYU, going on a mission. So knowing that you, after uh, this early you know, childhood, even uh, early adulthood, decide to go into religion academically, it seems like a strange thing for a Latter-day Saint to then explore religion as a whole what uh, what influenced you to do that? Sure, yeah, that's that's a uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, and I'll just I'll kind of start backwards. Uh, I'll start at the you know reverse. Um, when I was living in Provo and and I've uh, been in my ward for quite a while, and uh, when I told people that I was headed off to to study religion at a divinity school, they were like, "Well, why? Why would you do that? Don't you know everything you need to know already?" Um, and of course, I would explain to them you know kind of what my interests were. But I think uh, the, the genesis of that, uh, funny enough. Uh, began when I was probably 14 or so, maybe 13. I can't remember. 14 is, is probably the right age. Uh, and I I moved around quite a bit as a uh, as as kind of a young man there, 14, 15. So I lived in New Jersey and Colorado and Utah, and I was kind of all over the place, which was good because um, it 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 forced me to learn how to make new friends and and adjust to different environments and whatnot. Uh, before we finally settled up here in Washington State uh, when I was uh, in ninth grade. But um, anyway, what was interesting about these communities that I lived in uh, was that they tended to have a very strong evangelical community. Um, and so I remember at age 14 uh, was the first time I was witnessed to uh, by one of my evangelical friends. And it was really the first time where someone had come after uh, my religious beliefs so explicitly. Um, 
so I was taken back a little bit. I mean, they, were, they quoted Revelation 22, you know, this the standard, uh, you know, you can't add to this or it's a curse and all right. that good stuff. Uh, and so I wanted to have an answer to that. So I, I started reading about Christian history and how did the Bible come together and, um, you know, what were the parallels between Mormonism and early Christianity. And so that led me to read some Hugh Nibley and uh, all of those things. And again, like I was 14, 15, 16, grown up. So this kind of sparked an interest in me in the academic study of religion um, just because I wanted to be able to answer people uh, intelligently when they asked about uh, my faith, right? So why is, it, why is it reasonable for you to believe in the Book of Mormon, for example? So I wanted to have an answer for that. Um, but at the same time, you know, it was, it was also challenging because I was introduced to some challenging concepts uh, early on. But at the time, they came from such uh, – how do I put this? Such um, – partisan sources, so like Ed Decker, um, who who presents some information sometimes that's correct, but he does it in such a just crazy way that it's very easy to just dismiss him out of hand. So, right. uh, and I think that that's probably good for most people to do. He's he's not quite accurate in a lot of things that he does, whether it's masonry or Mormonism or whatever. Um, but uh, so that was easy to do, but yet those, those, those ideas were still there. So I had some idea of... Um, of you know some of the historical questions and and maybe some of the criticisms of, of Book of Mormon historicity or whatnot, uh, but you know also in high school so this this kind of goes into a little bit so I, I continued on to be witnessed to by my evangelical friends and by golly I was gonna you know return the favor and, and give them a Book of Mormon and, and whatnot so um, you know I I kind of formulated that in, in high school but at the same time I also uh, really gained an interest in politics and um, and in leadership in general I, I served as a student body president and uh, I was governor of Boys State here in Washington uh, so I really had this um, I really developed this interest in politics so to make a long story short uh, when I had the opportunity to go to Yale Divinity School um, I, I, I went on a, a partial academic scholarship so it was a really good opportunity um, I, I, I knew I would have the opportunity to study under Tom Ogletree, who is one of the leading thinkers in political and theological ethics. Uh, and so for me, the whole intersection between religion and politics um, and ethics and public policy was really fascinating for me. So my goal going into divinity school was to develop for myself uh, a mechanism or a system or some sort of uh, methodology, for lack of a better word, to think about issues of public policy or, or political issues and to determine, okay, what's just, right? What's, what's a just and fair policy? Uh, you know, and what, what does that even mean? What is justice, right? So I was introduced to some of those concepts as a political science minor at, at BYU. Uh, but it really gave me a chance to dive deep into that. Um, and so that, that was my motivation to, to go. Um, but like I said, it all started with being witnessed to by my evangelical friends as a teenager uh, and me having to search out and try and find answers to some of their questions or, or criticisms. Excellent. I want to kind of set up the next question I want to ask you is I, I know reading your paper and having listened to you at FAIR that you've had some faith struggles yourself over the course of your life. And I want to get into that, but I want to set that up this way. You talk about encountering the these evangelical friends who are asking questions. You talk about reading deeper material even at the age of 14 and 15 that most Latter-day Saints probably aren't even reading in adulthood. Do you find, looking back, that the paradigm in which you situated your faith was, I don't know how I want to phrase this, it was more realistic than 
than what um, most Latter-day Saints would have as a teenager, as a young adult. I guess I want to get into where, what was your mindset, what was your framework before you entered your faith crisis, and then we can actually ask about the crisis itself. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't say that I was anything, um, that my experience was was anything terribly unique. I, um, you know, my, my Latter-day Saint friends in, in high school, we would talk about a lot of these issues, and, and I was very lucky to have some very smart friends who went on to some very prestigious universities and, and whatnot. Uh, and so they were interested in some of these things, things too, so so, uh, but but to your main point, um, you know, how did I frame that? Well, I mean, for me, it always, it, even even as as you know, before my mission, it, it really came down to uh, mystical experience or that exp- what Mormons would generally call an experience with the spirit. Um, I had had uh, many spiritual experiences growing up. Um, I prayed about the Book of Mormon. I prayed about all sorts of things. I prayed all the time, you know, uh, uh, and uh, I'd always had that experience. And so even if there were questions that maybe I couldn't quite, you know, get my head wrapped around, um, you know, I'll give you one example. So, um I don't know, I was a 17, 18-year-old. I'd, I'd read some criticism of the Book of Mormon uh, stating that, that, boy, Mosiah and Alma uh, sure have a lot of American Republican uh, republicanism in there, which is quite amazing given that it happened before, uh, excuse me, before Christ. Um, so I thought, yeah, that, that's a little odd, right, that we would have this, this incredible statement of, of republicanism in the Book of Mormon um, long before such ideas were really formulated by the Founding Fathers. Uh, so, you know, that was one issue that kind of was there. Um, it didn't really bother me necessarily, but, but it was always just kind of, I was thinking about it, right? Uh, and uh, so that, that's one issue that kind of stuck there. But for me, I always pivoted back to, um, this spiritual experience, right? So it's, um, that's not to say that I discounted things of, of reason or, or, uh, or study, uh, that I would not look at them or that, or whatnot. And I mean, a lot of people talk about having a shelf. I mean, I don't really think I was putting it on the shelf or anything like that. Uh, but it was always in the back of my mind. But again, what was important to me, um, first and foremost was that spiritual experience that I had. Uh, so these, these specific issues, uh, didn't really kind of bubble up. Uh, to become what we would call a faith crisis. I, 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 I don't know. I've never felt quite comfortable with that word, but I guess that's the best way to, or that, that phrase to describe it, but I guess that's, that's a, a good way to put it. Um, you know, so it wasn't until much later, until I was in my late twenties, uh, when I had learned other things and, 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 and so as all these things kind of came together, uh, it created, um, a period of, of serious doubt and, uh, and questioning for me. So early on, you know, teenager, young adult, your your foundation really isn't shaken by this stuff. You're simply relying back on those anchors of of spiritual experiences, and and that holds you over through that early time, correct? Okay. And so now, like you say, moving into your your mid to late twenties, all of a sudden you indicate that you begin to struggle. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit about uh, your faith struggle and maybe kind of? Uh, framing that? Sure. So, um, you know, like I said, I was aware of a lot of these issues uh, for quite a while. Um, and I then became aware of, of more issues as I started to study history, uh, um, some non-correlated history, shall we say. So I was really, uh, I, I, I've always been kind of, I don't know how I put this, I don't, I don't want to say rebellious or, but, you know, if, if you ban something, it's just going to make me want to read it, 
right? So when I had heard that Mike Quinn, you know, of course I was, this was long after the fact, but I'd, I'd heard about Mike Quinn and, oh, he was excommunicated for writing history. Well, that made me want to read what he wrote. I mean, just like, what's so scary about what, what he could have written? So, um, I read, uh, Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview, which, to be honest, wasn't, I mean, it was really interesting. I think he, he brought up some really interesting points, but that in and of itself wasn't a huge, uh, uh, struggle, uh, or didn't cause any, any significant struggle or whatever. Um, uh, the his his Mormon hierarchy series, however, uh, really did. Um, it started to make me question, and it really it wasn't even polygamy. I, mean, I hear a lot of people say, "Oh, uh, Joseph Smith polygamy and all that." I, I don't know when I first learned that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, but but I kind of just knew that for some reason, or I didn't maybe didn't know all the details. Uh, so it wasn't even that that bothered me. I think it was more. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I hate to even say that these things were primary, like the primary driver, but but you know maybe the Council of Fifty and some of the um, some of the, the the things that went on on there, um, and then of course the the extensions of power was an interesting book, um, and, and just kind of looking at. Um, Kind of looking at church leadership over the years and whatnot. And I think I think what what that did, what Quinn's work did for me, and I've met Mike, and I, I really he's such a great guy, uh, just just as genuine and sweet as can be. Um, but I think what that did is I started to see that, and I mean really see that the church is run by human beings, and that sometimes the stories that we we tell ourselves. Uh, to support specific doctrinal positions um, are, are not really historically tenable. And that bothered me a lot, right? So, for example, we always tell the story of the priesthood restoration, um, and we, we use the historical moment of Peter, James, and John uh, restoring the Melchizedek priesthood. And then, of course, we all know that the Melchizedek priesthood is required uh, in order to restore the church and whatnot. Well, as I, as I looked at the evidence and I saw that the, the Melchizedek priesthood restoration, um, even Richard Bushman dates it as June of 1830, I believe, maybe July. Well, that's months after the church was organized. So I started to question the, uh, the basis for a lot of the theological positions that were being put forth. Because in Mormonism, we base so much of our theology, well, I wouldn't say so much, we base a lot of our theology uh, on historical events. So the first vision, what did the first vision teach us? It taught us that God and Jesus are separate. Um, well, you know, what does the restoration of the priesthood teach us? Well, that it teaches us that, that we need to have the priesthood, and this is how it's, how it's there. And then um, this is, uh, let me backtrack just a little bit. Another issue that, that had kind of, I'd had questions about for a long time, um, were the the the, uh, the changes that were made to the Book of Commandments, Doctrine and Covenants, uh, as time progressed, um, and it appeared on the surface to me uh, that it looked it looked like Joseph was was editing those for whatever reason. Um, I, you know, I can't I can't uh, pinpoint the motive necessarily, but it just seemed odd to me that you would have God deliver something from heaven uh, only to have it edited out later or to have it rephrased <laughs> or whatnot. Uh, so that kind of, you know, I went, well, that's just, that's kind of weird, you know. Um, and of course, you know, the, the interesting thing is, and, and you know, I got, I, I'll be honest, that one still is kind of strange to me. Um, I, uh, Richard Bushman in, in Roughstone Rolling, I think, takes a very charitable view of it. Although, uh, understanding more about Joseph Smith and how, how he approached things, I mean, Joseph Smith was really interesting in that he didn't really care about being consistent. Um, you know, if you look at, at the way he used certain verses of the Bible to justify certain theological positions, 
So, for example, I'm, I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but um, if, if you look at how he uses um, Revelation chapter 1 in the King Follett discourse, he uses that translation, uh, the King James translation, to support the idea that God the Father has a father. Well, that's a very bad translation of the Greek, uh, and every other translation of the Bible clearly makes it known that, that it's actually referring to Christ and not the Father. Um, but what's interesting is, is when Joseph Smith did his... Uh, translation of the New Testament, he edited those verses to correct it to make it clear that it was it was Jesus Christ. So he did that like 1831, 1832, and then 1844 when he delivers the King Follett uh, discourse, he actually falls back and uses the original King James uh, version, which he had uh, corrected in the Joseph Smith translation 10, 12 years earlier. So uh, Joseph was never, I don't think he was terribly concerned about being consistent in the way that, that we think about being historically consistent and whatnot. So um, to him, I don't think it was that big of a deal to go back and kind of adjust the revelations and uh, and do that because he wasn't, he wasn't overly concerned about that. Now, David Whitmer, of course, had issues with that and other people had some uh, concerns about that and that caused or that was a contributing factor to them uh, leading away but um, anyway so that that was an issue that that um, that concerned me a little bit that, that I didn't I didn't quite uh, grasp didn't quite understand um, why things would happen that way and it, it looked a little fishy um, and uh, then you know I, I kind of uh, started I was like well you know I've got questions now why don't I just go full bore so I started reading you know more about some criticisms of um, of Book of Mormon historicity, for example, uh, and you know, saw that boy, some of these things that that have been kind of propped up as evidence of of the Book of Mormon maybe weren't as solid as I thought they were. I, and I, this is funny. So I uh, I had long thought it was it's kind of so with the Book of Mormon I had. I knew there were these kind of questions about, oh, you know, the King James language and, and the, mis- the, 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 the translation errors carrying over and whatnot. You, know, you go on and on with, with whatever the, the criticisms might be. But what I held on to for many, many years was that, well, by golly, there's chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. And the only way it could be there is if the book was ancient and inspired by God. That's the only way it could do it. Well, that, came, that whole idea for me came crashing down uh, when I saw someone do an analysis of a technical software manual and pointed out that it, too, uh, had a chiastic structure. Uh, and so I was like, oh, my gosh, right? So, so that was kind of, that fell out. And, and so I just remember one moment in, uh, I think it was 2007, um, I think it was the summertime, uh, I, I just kind of sat one day and I, I just said, you know, it's just, this just isn't true, right? It just doesn't add up. And it wasn't any one thing that convinced me um, that, that Mormonism is true or Joseph Smith was this or that or whatever. It, it was just kind of, Everything together as a whole, it just became too much for me to try and make fit, and it became easier for me to think, well, okay, this all makes sense if it's just kind of a man-made thing, and Joseph was doing this or that, and blah, blah, blah. So I kind of adopted that uh, point of view for a while. So it wasn't any one specific thing. I wouldn't even say it was like one moment or, or whatever, and I, I, when I tell the story to other people, I, I often say, well... So I was an atheist for like three days and, uh, and figured, well, I can't really do that because I've, I've had so many spiritual experiences, mystical experiences, whatnot, um, that even if the church or the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith or whatever isn't, uh, isn't necessarily what I thought it was, how can I deny these spiritual experiences I've had? So then I became somewhat of an agnostic. Uh, maybe, well, I, I would say I was still in the theist camp. Um, so I kind of went through that transition um, and then for you know a period of eighteen months to two years, uh, maybe maybe a little longer, um, I I, I kind of stayed away from church. It was I, I just you know I didn't want to uh, I just didn't believe in it right. It just it wasn't for me. But at the same time, I didn't um, I didn't um, feel the need to to resign or or 
anything like that. I, I you know, make some statement or, or, or maybe, or fight against the church or whatnot. Uh, um, so you just stepped away a little bit. Yeah, I just stepped away. And I mean, you know, Prop 8 didn't help. Uh, my best friend at Yale, uh, is gay and, um, and it was, you know, and certainly I want to preface what I'm about to say with, with something is that I know most Mormon families would not do this uh, and behave this way. But one thing that really um, hit me uh, was after Prop 8, there was a, an LDS student um, that I was aware of who um, who came out to his family and the family said, well, you're dead to us now and, you know, you're not our son and whatever. And so he ended up uh, attempting suicide twice. Uh, was in the hospital and 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 whatnot. It's very sad, mm. uh, and so that really affected me. I think, and, and so if, if if there was any point in time where I was angry at the church or angry about just my my uh, my changing faith, it it really had to do with with Prop Eight and, and uh, those issues. It wasn't. I was never really ticked off, like oh the church lied to me, or I I, I just didn't experience that. Now I I want to say very clearly that I'm not trying to minimize that for other people it's that they react very differently to that. Um, all I'm trying to say is that for me, it just didn't, it just didn't hit me that way. Can, can I ask you something about that? So I'm kind of on the other end of that, which, which when I had my faith struggle or faith crisis, it was this, I had like you, I had known the issues from a young age. I had read Fawn Brody's no man knows my history before I joined the church and the issues themselves didn't bother me. But one day I just remember waking up and thinking to myself, why didn't the church tell me these 173 different things? And, uh, and that within me caused a lot of anger and bitterness and resentment. And I'm, I want to ask you maybe, because I know some of my listeners feel the way I did, or maybe they still do feel that way. How did you, how did you reconcile that, that to a point where you didn't feel that? Well, you know, I, I actually think being at a divinity school really helped me, really helped my reaction there because, um, Yale Divinity School, while it, it does have, uh, um, you know, we had people of all stripes from, from atheists to evangelicals to Jews to Roman Catholics to, to you name it. Um, it's a very liberal Protestant school. So, so it certainly teaches historical criticism and text criticism of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, and I had taken a class on the historical Jesus. So again, looking at the New Testament critically. Uh, and yet I compared that with what I saw every day at 10 a.m., which was everyone would go to the chapel. Not everyone, but a lot of people would go to chapel every day, 10 a.m., and worship in these incredible um, – oh, how do I put this? These, just these incredible worship services, singing and, and really coming together in fellowship. And you'd have some students who were, were seeking out an MDiv degree. Uh, they would, would prepare a sermon. You know, it's kind of practices they would learn in their sermon classes and how to deliver that. And, and man, man, there's some really good sermons that, that were delivered and just really spiritual things going on there. But yet these same people uh, would then right after go into a New Testament criticism class and talk about the historical Jesus, which undermines uh, some of the claim, or can potentially undermine some of the claims that Jesus was divine, or that the resurrection was a historical event. So when I saw that, I, I, I think being surrounded by people who who openly could encounter hist- problems of history and 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 recognize that the history didn't match up with with the uh, the, the the truth claim or the faith claim, uh, I think that helped me just kind of understand that I didn't need to be 
angry about it um, because these other people weren't necessarily angry. Maybe when they first came in and learned about New Testament criticism, they were a little surprised. But um, I saw plenty of examples of people living an incredible, incredibly faithful life, being fully aware of the historical problems in their own traditions. Uh, and so when I saw that I, and, and then I encountered it, I, I guess I didn't just – it just didn't strike me to get angry. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's just... the best way I can, I can describe it. It seems like maybe you just saw, as you had this perspective that was more encompassing with other religions in your view, it seems like maybe you just kind of noticed that that, that was happening everywhere. It wasn't something that just the LDS Chat, church was doing. Yes, that's exactly right. This is something that every church, every faith struggles with, right? How do we present history? How do you how do you strike that balance between presenting uh, what is what is the faithful mythology? And I don't want to use mythology in, 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 the, in a negative sense, saying that, oh, this is entirely right. untrue. But how do you present this faithful mythology, this, this, this faithful story? story uh, in light of historical realities or what we think are historical realities the best the best that we know uh, so yeah I mean seeing other people go through it, it's not an, it's not a strictly LDS thing uh, and so um, yeah I, I think that helped a lot with with me not having uh, that that type of reaction to the history part and then of course having known about the history uh, or lots of it um, not a lot well yeah I'd say lots of it um, beforehand it just didn't it, it, it kind of didn't hit me like a ton of bricks uh, so I just didn't have that visceral reaction to it. But again, I, I definitely want to stress that uh, I think my situation is a little unique, and I can I can absolutely understand why uh, it evokes uh, feelings of betrayal and anger uh, in people who have been taught a certain thing about the, the church um, and the history of the church growing up, and then when they realize that well that that may not actually be uh, the full story, uh, I can absolutely relate, and I, or not necessarily relate personally, but I can understand why that would uh, evoke feelings of frustration and anger and hurt. Right, and you you talk a little bit about this in your paper. But I guess I'll hit on it now because you talked a little bit about it in, in some of your comments here over the last couple of questions. But our testimonies are not just based on a spiritual experience. They're also based on these stories. And as you, you know, as you use the word mythology, how I come to understand that is we're given stories. When we go to church, people tell us about Thomas Marsh and the milk strippings. People tell us about, um, uh, the witnesses having left the church and, and still not recanting on their testimony. We're told about Joseph Smith and his leg surgery when he's a young boy and how valiant he was. And so it's not just about having this experience with the Holy Ghost, but it's also this idea of looking at a story or a narrative and saying, I'm going to place my trust in that. And at some point, for a lot of us who study history, and as you kind of point out, things don't always match up perfectly. And and I, I wish I don't know maybe I'm, there's not even a question at the end of this at this statement but I wish there was a way that all members could grasp that because for those who have a family member or a ward member or a friend who loses their faith in the church they don't seem to right away grasp that it's not just about the spiritual experiences it's also about the trust you place in the story does that make sense I, absolutely uh, I think. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a maturation process. Uh, I th well, I think we, this goes back to Joseph Smith, right? Everything, not everything necessarily, but, but Mormonism came about because of a story, right, that he told. Um, his, his mom talks about him telling stories about Nephites and his meetings with Moroni and, and whatnot and what the culture was like and all those things. So he was very much a storyteller. Um, and I think that that just became a big part of the culture. And then those stories kind of take on a life of their own. So I think a great example is uh, the first vision. So in today's church, we use the first vision to teach about the separation of the Godhead. Well, Joseph Smith never did that. 
ever. In fact, the early leaders of the church never used the first vision in that way. It wasn't right. until, you know, well into the Utah years that someone said, hey, this is a great story that we can use to teach the separation of, uh, of, of the Godhead uh, and, and the, 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 that it's not three in one or, or whatnot. Joseph Smith never did that. Uh, and so, to, you know, looking at that, I think that, that um, a well-intentioned person took a story which which they believed in and they start applying it a certain way and then the story takes on a life of its own and the story can start to eclipse the purpose of the story and i think that that's again that's not an lds thing it's not it's not uh you know just just something that the latter-day saints struggle with um it's uh it's you know it's just it's a common human thing right we all uh might be a little shocked when when the story starts to eclipse the the meaning of the story uh itself and then we realize that maybe the story as we understand it isn't uh isn't exactly true and i think an example of this and it's not the greatest example but one i often think of is we all know the story of george washington and the cherry tree well we all know that that's not true i right? did it didn't actually happen in history it, it it just it never happened well what's the point of the story the point of the story is twofold one it teaches us that George Washington was uh, a good, honest man uh, because, boy, he was revered. I mean, he almost uh, went through apotheosis while he was still alive, um, uh, you know, in, in the early days of the country. But uh, so that's point number one. We want to reinforce that George Washington is an honest man. I cannot tell a lie. Uh, and then the other point of the story is to encourage us to be honest, right, and never tell a lie. Well, that's the point of the story. So um, the fact that it didn't happen in history doesn't change the meaning of the story and it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that I can learn something very important from the story um, right. so now granted I, I, I don't think that that's a perfect analog for, for things in the church because I think the church often tries to use uh, history in order to support specific theological claims which I think can be very problematic um, but I, I kind of view it uh, it's, it's similar to that right so how do we not let the story eclipse what the story is really trying to tell us yeah, and I don't think it, the distorting of the narrative over time is an intentional um, thing done out of dishonesty. But and you talk about the idea behind the the first vision or his experiences there. When you look at the translation process, for instance, right when Joseph's asked about the translation, he essentially refuses to really talk about it and says it's enough to just know it was by the gift and power of God. And yet today we go out and teach the discussions, and missionaries can't wait to talk about the Urim and Thummim being found with the plates and Joseph translating with Oliver Cowdery, and 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 we want to go on and on about the translation. And it, like you say, it really is more of a, an innocent. By, a byproduct of a desire to bring all unto Christ and to try and share a message that touches people and brings them in. And it's not, it's not done dishonestly. Although for those who struggle when they first encounter it, it certainly feels that way. And I think it's just a matter of all of us kind of, um, digging a little deeper and understanding context a little better. I, I completely agree, Bill. And I, I think it's also important to remember that, you know, Mormonism is the quintessential American religion. And a big part of New England theology at the time of Joseph Smith, and of course, as, as he evolved uh, and and continued on into Ohio and, and uh, into uh, Illinois, um, I think of Joseph Smith very much as a natural theologian. So he looked around at how the world worked. Uh, and he eternalized it. So he he talks about God having a body of flesh and bones. Well, that's an eternal man. He's taking what he sees, and he turns it into an eternal concept. And I think this is very... Um, it's, it's a very American thing to do. Uh, the early Christian uh, fathers would not have, they didn't worry about historicity of the Bible, for example. They were thinking about uh, more philosophy and theology. They, were, they really weren't concerned with, well, did this, this, did this actually happen? Uh, but, you know, in America, at, at natural theology, we're looking 
looking at, at these things, and and so I, t- I totally agree. It, 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 I think a lot of it is uh, innocent. Um, also, we have to remember that for many, many years, when these stories started to formulate uh, and become the basis for theological positions, the church was under incredible pressure from outside sources and from outside right. Christianity, and so that's why you have this incredibly antagonistic rhetoric from, from uh, Brigham Young and others about mainstream Christianity or about Christendom at large, um, and also this desire to give a rational uh, basis for uh, the belief. And so I think that that often uh, leaders of the church or members of the church would look uh, to bits of history and then try and and use that to bolster the the claims, countering the criticism from traditional Christianity. So I don't think we can lose that either. There is that you know you, you're just getting bombarded all the time with how evil you are. You're you know you're this and that and and you know um, of course when a political party makes makes uh, shaking <laughs> down polygamy one of the great evil. Right? I forget the exact phrase, but but uh, you know they're under tremendous pressure, of course, you're going to respond to that in a certain way. And I think a lot of that response um, has, has stuck with us and kind of just hung on as being a rationale for, for certain theological assertions. Yeah, we make that crossover, like you say, to politics. It becomes quite obvious of the, the game of painting something as all good or all evil. You uh, you are either – I know you're either still attending or attended Yale, correct? Uh, yeah, so I graduated Yale in 2008 uh, with a Master of Arts in Religion. So Is this the Yale University? Yeah, yeah. Wow, you must be one smart cookie. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, it certainly was uh, an awesome experience, and um, I, I had a chance to meet incredible LDS students and, of course, to study under some uh, really just incredible minds. I mean, I, I can't speak highly enough of my uh, of my uh, advisor, Tom Ogletree. He's just, uh, you know, he was, he was involved early on in the civil rights movement and uh, social justice issues, and um, but he was always uh, fair-minded. Uh, he was always very even-handed when it came to issues of politics uh, when it came to to, to to all these things. So I was very, very fortunate to be able to study under, um, you know, some, some of these great biblical scholars and, and ethicists and, and whatnot. So I, I just look at the experience, and I just, I'm just very grateful for having had that experience. That's incredible, and it was probably expensive, too. Uh, well, you know, lucky enough, uh, <laughs> I, I was. I, I was on a partial academic scholarship. Um, awesome. I can't remember what part that was, but but so it it. it it was uh, it was a good experience and well well worth the investment I think. Awesome. I know you took a uh, an interest in Mormon studies while you were there. Uh, tell us about some of the issues you researched while uh, while doing that. Yeah. So um, there were two main areas that I looked at. Uh, the the first one was history. So uh, as I encountered more of this of, of the quote unquote new Mormon history, I guess I should put that in quotes. It is the new Mormon history that approach that that kind of was. Uh, Started in a way by Fawn Brody and then followed up uh, with Quinn and others, um, Arrington and, and whatnot. Uh, I, I I saw that a lot of people were were stating what what we've kind of been talking about that it was history that drove people to leave the church. That when they found out about the true history, that they would uh, they would realize that this wasn't what it claimed to be and that they would then move on. So I was really intrigued by that claim and I I wanted to really dig into that. So. One of the big projects that I, I worked on, um, well, there were two uh, that were, were similar. The first one I started on was the the history of the priesthood ban. I'd never been comfortable with the priesthood ban. I, I, I you know, this was before I'd had my, you know, my real crisis in 2007. Um, so, you know, I, I, I looked at that and uh, looked at the history of it, uh, 
read some some of the great articles by Lester Bush um, and Armin Moss and others, and really felt a liberating experience. Uh, it was really a liberating experience because I, I finally felt that I had enough of a historical basis to say this was a wrong, this was an incorrect policy implemented for political reasons, and it was a mistake. And being able to finally admit that and go, oh, it's like just a, a huge sigh of relief. So that was that was the first thing. And then um, as I as I had more and more questions come up about, about other issues, and then, and like I said, I I would uh, read online about people leaving because of history or or, or uh, you know this this historical issue or that one. I actually uh, took the institute manual. Um, which is Church History in the Fullness of Times, I think, is, is the title. At least it was at the time. They may have, have a different version now. Uh, and I, I did a comparison between what the church puts in its institute manual and what the new Mormon history or the, I would say, the objective or scholarly history has to say. And that was a very, very interesting uh, exercise for me because what I found was that the church uh, did mention a lot of these controversial issues in the Institute Manual. It, did, it didn't hide them um, in the sense that it didn't mention them. But what I did see is that uh, it often put s- such a spin on it that it gave a very incorrect, um, well, at least in my assessment, an incorrect view of what actually happened. So, I mean, we look at the Kirtland Bank fiasco, for example. The, the, the bank failed um, because Joseph Smith was a terrible banker, right? And, and so were his uh, associates, and, and he did some things, unknowingly in my opinion, that were in violation of Ohio law. Uh, you know, it was just a, a mess from, from you know, beginning to end, right? And I know a lot of people have lots of different opinions on, on that particular issue. But if you look at the Institute Manual, it says that, it, that, that the panic was started by anti-Mormons and blah, 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 right? Well, that's there's just no evidence to support that claim. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I went through the manual. That's just one example. And I would I would note areas like that. I would say, well, here's an area where they're mentioning it. But you know what? They're giving a, an impression that's maybe a little a little skewed. Or maybe there were some other like take money digging, for example. Uh, it mentions it in the priesthood manual, or it's not the priesthood, the institute manual. I mean, it certainly brings it up, talks about how people accuse Joseph of being a money digger. Uh, it actually states that he was, but that he did it in his youth and, and gave it up and, and, and whatnot. Well, that's mostly true, uh, although he kept doing it for a little longer than the institute, or than the institute manual would like us to believe. So, I, again, I pointed out some of these things that, that really, um, I felt and my, the main argument that came out of this project, this paper, was that, you know, it's not necessary for the church to put this spin on all of these issues. It's not that big of a deal to just kind of lay it out how it is. And, you know, if, we, if we're going to say that our prophets are just men uh, and that Joseph Smith was just a man, why do we have such a hard time saying he was a crappy banker, right? I mean, what's, what's the right, big right. deal? So, mm-hmm. or that he made a mistake doing this or that or, or whatever. Uh, so um, that, was, that was an interesting uh, project for me to do. Uh, it, it, and it also made me a little more sympathetic towards the church because I, uh, if I'm sitting there on the correlation committee writing these manuals or contributing to it, uh, how, how in the world do you decide, how do I talk about Joseph Smith's money digging um, in a faithful way, right? How do I present that in a faithful way? And I happen to disagree with how it came out in the manual. Uh, I think there are other ways to approach it. Um, but you know what? If I were on the committee and, and that was my calling, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's, I, I just gained a little sympathy for them because they're in a tough spot, right? You've got all these historical oddities and you're trying to present it in a faith-promoting way and it's it's uh it's a tough job right so uh 
I don't I didn't fault them too much, even though I, I was a little critical uh, and and I, I highlighted some areas where I think things could have could have been not they didn't have to be spun. They could, they could have just been uh, put out as as the way we understand it. Right. I mean, and, and especially since the manual was published, it'd be one thing if it was a manual published in the 1940s or 50s. But my goodness, since then, we've got all these documents. We've 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 unearthed uh, you know tons of things. We should know better by this point. So that was that was my main argument. So that was the first issue was was was, was history. Uh, and that that was a great project. Um, uh, I really really enjoyed that. And then the second was uh, had to do with ex Mormonism. So. Uh, and it kind of spun off from this, um, the, the historical question. So when I kind of did my survey of these historical issues, uh, you know, I, I was sympathetic towards the church, but at the same time a little critical. Uh, I really wanted to find out um, what issues specifically, what uh, what was going on with the history, you know, the the, 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 the Boyd K. Packer talk where he where he says that, that uh, oh, sometimes the truth isn't useful, whatever, you know, the, the thing that that's quoted right. all the all time. All truth isn't right. Yeah, yeah, you know, so, something along those lines. Um, I really wanted to to find out, is that really what's driving it? Like, and not is not that I doubted it, right, because people, why would people, you know, be dishonest about why they left the church? I mean, of course, it's a hard thing to do to, to lose your faith and, and transition. So, uh, but I really just wanted to understand it a little bit, like um, what specific issues were concerning, uh, uh, what what sources were people relying on um, when they first uh, heard about troubling information. Was it online stuff? Was it did they read Mike Quinn's books? Did they uh, read John Krakauer? Whatever it might be, I just wanted to understand it a little more. So. Uh, my initial goal was was ambitious. I was like, "Oh, I'm going to do this survey, and I'm going to I'm going to try and do this." And, and of course, thinking through it for a while, I, f- I realized that any survey uh, would it, it, to mean anything, I would have to track people over a long, long period of time, uh, and and then see you know what they read at some point and if they left the church or not. So I re- I quickly realized that that was just not that was not doable. Right? I just I was a graduate student. How could I do that? So. Um, Armin Moss actually recommended uh, some work by David Bromley, a sociologist who had done um, who, who had written a lot about apostasy, right? Apostasy from religious traditions, uh, and he had a focus on newer religious traditions like the Moonies or Hare Krishna or whatnot. Um, but he wrote some really interesting things, and so as I surveyed Bromley's work, uh, I, I was really intrigued by this concept of of exit narratives. Um, because what I had found and noticed online, uh, reading and then also interacting with some people, was that a lot of people produced a narrative about about them leaving the church, right? Giving the reasons why, uh, um, talking about their pioneer heritage and, and whatnot. So this really intrigued me. And so what I ended up doing is gathering about 136, 138, I can't remember what the, what the, uh, uh, what the exact number is, um, different narratives from various sources, but mostly from exmormon.org. Uh, that was the one I was most familiar with at the time. If I had if I had the opportunity to go back and do the study again, I would I would broaden it a little bit. So most of them came from exmormon.org. And then I, I got some from some evangelical sites. Um, at the time, I don't know if postmormon.org had many stories posted or whatnot. But like I said, if I could do it again, I would go back and kind of broaden the search a little bit. Uh, but, you know, I had what I had. And what I did is as I would read these these stories, um, I would I would note uh, what I would call narrative elements, right? So if if someone, for example, said I uh, served a mission, okay, well that's a, that's an element, right? That's an element of the narrative that someone added in there. Uh, 
or I was married in the temple. Okay, that's another one. Or I, uh, am, I'm homosexual, and that's why I had a hard time in the church. Okay, that's that, that's an element, right? So just to try to understand how these things were constructed uh, and what they meant. And I have to tell you that reading these things uh, was really, really, really difficult. Um, it really broke my heart in a lot of cases because uh, people would, would tell just really painful stories about, number one, how it felt to lose faith. Uh, and then number two, and I think this is the, the most unfortunate part, is is how they were treated by some members uh, as they made that transition out of the church or uh, really went through that crisis. How their how their uh, beliefs were, were or their their struggle was minimized, or they were mistreated by a bishop or whatnot. And you know, I I will mention that that when we read narratives of this type or any narrative, we always have to be uh, have some healthy skepticism because the narratives, um, as people recall things and they tell a personal story, they're trying to convey a message. We talked about that before, how a story conveys a message. Well, the same is true of us. If I tell you, in fact, as I've been telling you a story tonight about, you know, my own history or whatever, I'm trying to convey a certain message, whatever that might be. Um, there's there's a point driving that. Uh, and so we we can't necessarily look at these narratives or any narrative as a in isolation as a, uh, as a point that says this actually happened in history. However, uh, what made me feel that these these narratives were uh, really important um, and uh, well was that number one, the stories that they told about being mistreated about a bishop saying this or doing this or, or a ward member or whatever. Um, they were believable because I'd seen some of that stuff happen in my own wards over the years. Uh, I, I think maybe I had a, a negative experience with one state president sometime, but mostly I was lucky to have really cool bishops and, and ward leaders and, and whatnot. Uh, but I had seen other church leaders treat other people very poorly. Uh, and so I, I felt that, you know, these narratives, um, were, were really expressing something that was, should be of real concern. And then, uh, most importantly, even if a particular single narrative, even if we can't take that and say, okay, well, this event, X, Y, and Z, happened in history, the narrative serves as a very effective um, method of conveying how that person feels at the time of writing the narrative. Okay, so uh, so we, we get those two bits out of it. And, and what was abundantly clear in reading the narratives that were produced was that this process of losing faith and uh, exiting the church either formally or informally, uh, some people chose to resign, some people didn't, uh, it was difficult. It was very, very difficult. It was not an easy thing to do. It's not something that people took lightly. It's not a decision that people uh, made uh, you know, rashly. They gave it a lot of thought. They struggled with it. They, they really agonized over it and then eventually got to a point where they just said, hey, you know, I got, I've got a break. So um, it was that study of the ex-Mormon narrative that really uh, piqued my interest in, um, in this whole process of people leaving the church and what causes it, uh, how, um, how people are treated as they leave, uh, that, that struggle. And so I, I would say that's the genesis of, of my thinking on pastoral apologetics. And for those who are interested in, in reading um, that paper, uh, it should be published in dialogue sometime early next year. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's got the, the whole analysis there uh, that, that I had uh, put together for those narratives. But that was where I started to really think about um, how difficult it was to leave and really what it meant to doubt the church and to struggle with that. And I gained a lot of sympathy for people that went through it. Um, and of course, I had been going through it myself, so I could relate. Um, and yeah, anyway, that, that was kind of that kind of got me started thinking about um, how can we approach doubt 
in a more productive way. Because obviously the way local church leaders that I had seen, um, even church members who thought they were being helpful, uh, you know, there's a better way to do it. Uh, and it, I just kind of started thinking thinking along those lines um, at that point. And, and those ideas were kind of formulating over the last few years, and it uh, came out at, at, in the fair conference this year. Yeah, and I'll and I'll link that paper to uh, to this episode so that people can at least read the the talk you gave at Fair and kind of understand some of these things that you're talking about uh, because some of these things that you've studied at Yale obviously are huge contributors to this whole concept of pastoral apologetics within the paper that you wrote and uh... and now a brief message from one of our sponsors. The sponsor is a regular listener to Mormon Discussion podcast. He has written the book Seventy Seven Days in September. It tells of a story of a man overcoming countless obstacles to reunite with his family after a terrorist attack disrupts the United States. 77 Days is based on a real threat, and while not LDS fiction, it is suitable for an LDS audience. It has sold over 75,000 copies, spent five weeks ranked in Amazon's Top 100, narrowly missed the New York Times bestseller list, and has over 1,800 reviews with 90% of reviewers rating it four or five stars. If you like to read books, you will love 77 Days in September. 77 Days in September is currently available as an ebook for just $3.99 from Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, and Smashwords. Please show your support for this sponsor of our program by purchasing his book, 77 Days in September. And now back to the second half of our episode of Mormon Discussion. Look, I look forward to the other paper that you've got coming out. I guess it's uh, you make it sound like it's a, a larger, more encompassing of this whole thing. It, it is. Uh, it's it, it really what it does is it takes a broad sociological look. Uh, it, it positions the church um, according to this typology that, that uh, Bromley puts forth, uh, and and then that sets the context for why do we have ex-Mormon narratives to begin with, right? Because in today's day and age, we don't really see ex-Catholic narratives. I mean, we might see it from an evangelical who converts from Catholicism to evangelical, and they'll maybe share a testimony about how they found the truth and, and Catholicism wasn't it and whatever. I mean, we, we might see something like that, but you don't have you, you don't see narratives being produced in the same manner as for Mormonism. And so, I think setting that sociological context um, was really important to help me understand why are these narratives being produced in this way, and why have they taken the form that they take on. So yeah, it, it's a, it's a little bigger. It's it's uh, it just puts thing put put it, it tries to put put uh, the issue in, in a much larger context. Were you was in your time out of the church? Was that when you were doing this research? No. Uh, well, so I actually my my, uh, my so funny enough. Um, yeah, so I'll share this story. I was I was thinking, well, should I share this? Yeah, I should. Uh, so I was actually a Sunday school teacher at the time, and. Um, I really, you know, one thing that Divinity School did for me was, uh, was gave me a real appreciation for the, the scriptures, uh, and, you know, just how rich and, and really incredible they are, and, um, and, and all, you know, they're academically interesting, and they're spiritually wonderful, and, and, and all those things. So, uh, I was, I was teaching Sunday school at the time, and I made it, we were studying New Testament, I think. Um, and I would make it a habit to only use the scriptural text, right? That's it. I wouldn't bring in the, the manual. I think that the whole notion that you can teach five chapters of the New Testament in 45 minutes is absurd. Right. Uh, so I I'm would, as a teacher, I would say, okay, well, what's the reading? And let me see if I can find what's, what's a really moving or inspirational or, or relevant passage. And I would really focus on that and we'd have a, a discussion and, uh, and everything. So when I was going through my crisis, uh, my, my struggle, I was, I was teaching, um, uh, as well. And, and one day the bishop 
called me into his office and said, hey, uh, people are complaining about your Sunday school lessons. And, and I was like, you got to be kidding, right? I was like, I, I said, I'm only using the scriptures. I said, yeah, you need to stick with the manual. And at that point, um, <laughs> at, at that point, I just said, I'm, I'm done. I said, I, this is done. I'm just, I'm finished. So uh, I, at, that was it. That was the last time I went to church for a long time, just because I was like, this just isn't worth it, right? Here I am trying to, to keep some semblance of faith and all this stuff, and yet people are complaining that I'm reading the New Testament and they want me to stick to the manual. <laughs> so I, 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 that just was the, as silly as, silly as that sounds, that, it's, that was the last round. But that was, I was writing this, uh, this, I was doing research and writing about ex-Mormon narratives at that same time. I think I finished that paper up in November of 2007. Um, and I think that was about the same time where I, where I had that experience and I just kind of said, I'm, I'm out for a while. So. Gotcha. You, go ahead. You, you made an interesting comment when you talk about teaching this, the New Testament and people in class having a problem. A lot, you know, when you go on to, uh, some of these discussion boards where people are really deeply struggling or are to the point where they no longer believe and are just staying for social reasons. You'll see people who use church as a forum to try and open other people's eyes. And I don't get the feeling that you were doing that at all as you're teaching the New Testament and yet, and yet not using the manual and using the scriptures, people had a problem with it. That's why I was laughing. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you know, I, but I understand. I mean, there's certain people that are, I mean, I mean, it it depends on how seriously you take things, right? I mean, it's and I I have to be honest. I always tried to focus on what I thought was the spirit of the law, and you know what? I'm sure a lot of times I was wrong, but I was always trying to just do my best. Um, there was this odd policy. I don't know if it was church wide or, or whatever um, about how there shouldn't be um, get-togethers after a baptism, like food and 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 whatnot, because it might, if, if it happens for one person, it might make, make another person feel bad or you know, whatever. Well, in my ward, there was this uh, wonderful woman whose daughter got baptized, uh, and she was a fantastic cook and. You know, she held a little thing afterwards and had, had a little potluck and, and people were, were having a good time and, and you know, kind of socializing together and, and fellowship together. Um, but there were people in the ward who left that, left that baptism angry because, um, because the rule had been violated. And I thought to myself, this is, this is nuts. I mean, that's just not how I, that's not how I, how I approach things. Um, so, Having said that, I'm not trying to be overly critical of people who do approach things that way because in the church, you know, you are encouraged to be very letter of, you know, very strict. So I, I don't want to condemn or, 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 you know, criticize anyone who, who may have that point of view. It's just not the point of view that, that, that I adopt and that, that makes me comfortable. I'd rather stick with, with, uh, with what I think the spirit of the law is in a lot of cases, which I think is consistent with what Jesus taught. But, you know, I, like I said, I, I could be wrong, but that's, that's kind of how I approach things. Right, to each their own. But I, I will say this, the, the concept between this spirit of the law and letter of the law, there is one point to make, which is when people are struggling with their faith, generally they need flexibility. And the way they get that is to be able to choose for themselves what the Holy Ghost is telling them to do and not telling them to do and what's okay and what's not okay and, and to not have everything spelled out, which, which for those who tend to go by the letter of the law, there tends to be kind of that, um, that approach to one of conform everybody within rules. And I'll give you one example, which is I did a fireside at one time. I was serving as a bishop at the time. I did a fireside on the church and uh, there was members of the church there. One of them was a leader higher up than me. And after the fireside was over, the person walked up to me and I said, Hey, what did you think about that? And he goes, you didn't have a white shirt on. And you know, the whole idea that here I had just put on a fireside for non-members 
that uh, several non-members of our community showed up. I taught them the basics of the gospel. It was a very rich meeting. Lots of questions afterward. A little, uh, little, little munch and mingle type thing afterward. It was just well received. And yet the only thing this person could think about was the fact that here I was a bishop with a blue shirt and a tie rather than a white shirt and a tie. And when we, when we want to be so stringent with the rules that that's the most important thing to us, we kind of lose the humanity, as you point out, something Christ never lost. And and I would just simply say it, and us kind of going back and forth and talking about the letter of the law and spirit of the law, you're right. There are people out of both molds, and one is not right and one is not wrong. But I would say for those who are struggling with doubts, they need that flexibility. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of share a, a little story about, uh, you know, when I decided to return to church. So, you know, it had been you know, 18 months, two years or so. And I just, I just started remembering how much I missed going and, uh, how, how I, I wanted to be part of the community and, and I wanted to, um, be home taught and, 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 you know, be involved in elders quorum service projects and all that good stuff. So when I went back to church, the first thing I did is I set up an appointment to meet with the bishop. So I went in, met with my bishop. And I said, Bishop, here's where I am in regards to the church. And I kind of laid it out. Uh, about, you know, what my personal beliefs were or, or, or lack of belief was, uh, and, you know, kind of where I stood. And the reason I did that is because, um, I wanted, uh, I didn't want to put him in an awkward position where he would extend a calling to me and I would have to decline it because, I, you know, I can't testify of something that I don't really believe in, right? Um, uh, and also just, just to kind of be totally upfront and honest with him about, you know, who I was as a, as a member of his ward. Um, and, you know, he was just the perfect bishop for me at that time in my life. So he, uh, he was very kind and he said, you know, someday, uh, I hope that belief will return to you. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, you're welcome. You're, you're just as much a part of this ward as anybody else. Uh, he, he asked me to, um, to attend high priest group and, and with the express instructions to go stir things up down there. Uh, so I did that. And then of course I was, I was called as a, as a, a teacher of the high priest group, even though I was only, only an elder, uh, once in a while. But again, I, I shared, um, you know, where I stood with the high priest group leader. Um, when he actually was talking to me about being a teacher, and he said, that's fine. He said, you know, just pick stuff that you do believe in, right? Pick stuff that, that you can share and that you can testify about. So uh, one one day I, I, I was – he asked me to teach, and I thought, what, what, what do I teach on? I, uh, I was really – I had been reading the Gospel of John, and I, I was really moved by the um, the recurring theme of love and unity of the Gospel of John. I mean, that's really what the Gospel of John is about: uh, is love and unity amongst the disciples, and that and that love for one another is the uh, true sign of discipleship. It's not obedience. It's not this or that. Although that's certainly part of it. Um, but but Jesus, you know, taught that, that that having love for one another. I mean, that's how people know that that you're a follower of Christ. So that's something I believed in. Now that, that doesn't matter if Jesus is divine. It doesn't matter in this particular case, right? Uh, to, right. to teach about the, the importance of love and unity or whatever. So um, it doesn't matter if the Book of Mormon is historical or not. These are principles that I could talk about that I could testify of as being true. So I had this really fantastic experience. I, I, I gave this lesson um, and great comments from, from the members of the, of the high priest group. And I'll never forget what happened at the end of that quorum, or like group meeting, I should say, quorum. Um, as soon as the closing prayer was, was done, and there was a, a brother who was visiting, I can't remember where he's from, but he's visiting. I was living in New York City at the time, and so we'd often have visitors coming through. Um, but he, uh, he said, you know, 
I've got a, a family member who's struggling with something that was really, really a difficult struggle. And they, that person, that family member lived in our ward boundaries. And so he said, I, I'm just here to ask for your help. So the, the entire high priest group right then and there came up with the plan of action to go and make sure that this this person's family member who was struggling would be taken care of that they would have their temporal needs taken care of that they that, that someone would go by and just say hey you know we love you what can we do to help you uh, i mean an entire plan of action so what and this is a huge reason why i i love being mormon um, and I'm not saying this is exclusively Mormon, but it's just one thing that I really like about being Mormon, uh, is that these brethren heard a lesson and contributed a lesson in very much in, in the abstract and concepts and, and uh, whatnot about love and about unity and about how um, showing love to one another is a sign of our discipleship. And yet, or not yet, but and then at the very end of that uh, lesson, they put it into practice. I mean, it wasn't even a 30-second delay, and they were like, okay, let's get this done, right? So that's something that I really appreciate about that uh, that experience. I really, I, I, I will always be thankful to that bishop, uh, to that ward, um, to that high priest group leader, uh, to the members of the high priest group um, for accepting me for who I was, uh, for being the incredible examples that they were. And I want to go back to one point that, that you mentioned uh, earlier. You, you said that some people try and use church as a way to open other people's eyes. Um, this is something I feel really passionately about. That, that that's that's just not the right thing to do. I don't think that that's I, I don't think that's the compassionate thing to do um, because church is not a place. It's not an academic conference. Um, it's not a, a historical seminar. And you know, people are there to be uplifted. So why in the world would you do something that would um, that would cause someone to have a moment of doubt? out or or struggle. I mean, that's, that would defeat the purpose of, of being and worshiping together. Now, I'm not saying these things should never be talked about. They should, but there's a there's an appropriate time and place for for everything. Um, and I think, you know, for me, uh, I, I it's always tempting to do that, right? I mean, you're sitting in a in a, in a history lesson, at Doctrine and Covenants, where they're talking about history, and it, you know, they might say something that's the the manual might have something in there that's that, eh, okay, it's not quite accurate, or maybe there's a different take on it. And sure, there's always that temptation to to kind of raise your hand and say, well, wait a minute, that's not quite how it is. Um, but I, I did try, now I didn't always succeed, but I, I tried to, to avoid doing that, um, as best I could. The one time that I, I kind of, I wouldn't say I stirred the pot, but it was, it was an interesting thing. We were talking about the Old Testament and we we're talking about how, uh, the Lord commanded, um, the Israelites to completely wipe out a group of people, man, men, women, and children, animals, just completely slaughter them. And the teacher, sweet, sweet young woman, you know, just, just as, as nice as could be, you know, she taught this, and, and we kind of read through that, and nobody kind of thought about, well, I, I don't know, nobody even paused at, at that, um, at what had been described in the Old Testament. And I kind of raised my hand, and I said, does Am I the only one that, that, that hopes that this is part of the Bible that was translated incorrectly? Uh, you know, because I said this is we're talking about genocide on a massive scale. We're talking about women and children and infants being killed. And and, you know, I said this does this. Uh, I said, if, if God told me to to do that, I don't think I would do it. And, of course, someone turned around and said, uh, said, what are you talking about? If God told you to do it, I said, hey, I'd want a second opinion. I said, not because um, not because I don't trust God. It's because I don't trust myself enough to try and interpret what God is trying to tell me. So if I ever get the idea that God wants me to go out and wipe out an entire group of people, I'm probably not going to act on that um, because I just don't. I just don't. Uh, 
I don't trust myself enough to to, th- to believe that that's what God is actually telling me. Um, so that was the that was the one time that I I I don't know ruffled a couple of feathers a little bit. But there were some people after class that came up and said, "Oh, you know, I really I've thought about that too." And what and I I think that's really interesting. That's happened a few times um, where you know I blog on occasion and, and I'd have people come up to me at church and say, "Oh, you know, I've got questions about this or that," and and I read what you wrote about X, Y, or Z, and it was it was you know this is my opinion on it. And what I what I really discovered was is that in the church we have this we have this myth of orthodoxy right we have this idea that oh mormons believe blah 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 well right. i've i've been amazed to find out how much how many mormons don't believe certain aspects of whatever i mean there's so many women i've met who think polygamy was just a complete you know disaster uh, or who reject the blacks in the priesthood policy uh, you know out of hand or uh, you know far fewer people who might say the book of mormon is is ahistorical or whatnot so um, that that i think is unfortunate uh, and it's one thing I strongly advocate for. I really wasn't – I didn't do it in the FAIR conference uh, paper. I did it in a uh, uh, Sunstone presentation I gave, I think it was in 2012, uh, where I said, you know, those of us who, who do have some questions and doubts, we, you know, in the appropriate time and at the appropriate place, it, it, it probably is the compassionate thing to do to, to express that because – I could, I, you know, I know there's other people sitting in the room that are having struggles and doubts, but they they, they believe they're the only one. When, right. when in fact, probably half the room is struggling with one thing or the other. And sometimes, sometimes it's just such a relief to hear that someone else is going through what you're going through. So um, I advocate uh, that um, those who do struggle and have questions or or have studied some of these things, maybe we should be a little more open about them in a respectful and and an appropriate way. Um, and I think if we did that, we would get rid of this, like I said, this myth of Mormon orthodox. Uh, because we're we're as diverse and different as there as as you can be, but we pretend that we're not. We pretend we're all the same, and I think that that I I, I, I don't know. I don't think that's a good thing. I think it it puts undue pressure on those who who are different or struggle, uh, and it, it makes them feel like they need to conform when in reality nobody's conforming. Right. I, I want to ask this question now. I, I probably would fit better in a little later because I wanted to ask you another question before we actually got into your paper. But in the paper that you wrote, uh, the presentation you did for FAIR, uh, Pastoral Apologetics, on page two of that paper, and you hit on this just now, which is why I want to talk about it, you talk about the right thing to do sometimes is to speak up about having questions because it at least lets the other people in the room who are also struggling and having questions know that they're not the only one. And you make the comment on page two. It says, many members who doubt do so in silence, believing that they are alone in their struggle. Often by the time a member comes forward with their doubts, they have reached a zenith of hurt, anger, and frustration. For months and perhaps years, they have been reading, listening, and learning in relative isolation left to formulate ideas, thoughts, and perspectives with little or no input from others who, one, are fully aware of difficult church-related issues, and two, have discovered ways in which to harmonize faith and doubt. And here's what I want to say. I know having done my podcast here for the last 13 months, I have gotten emails from mission presidents, stake presidents, and bishops who love the things that I'm talking about and appreciate that somebody's talking about the hard issues openly so that members can be reassured that it's not, that they're not alone, that there's not the, there's not just one way to think about these things. There's other ways to contextualize these issues. But on the other hand, there are leaders of the church who, if they don't see this problem going on, they don't want to touch it. And what I wish all leaders of the church at least understood is whether you talk about it or not, whether people come to you or not, there are people out there who are having serious questions and struggling, and they need somebody to stand up 
and and at least give them a way to frame that doubt. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, I, I I completely agree. Any any leader of the church who thinks it's not happening in his or her ward, um, you know, maybe the only ward that that isn't happening in is a place that doesn't have internet access. You know, something like that, right? right? I mean, it's, it's it, people. I mean, in this in this information age, I mean. You, People are going to come across things and they're going to have questions. And it's better to just talk about it openly and to, to kind of hash it out. And that's not to say that you're going to convince someone that, you know, a question about Book of Mormon historicity, that you're going to resolve that for the person or whatever. Well, first off, you know, we can't resolve questions for other people. They've got to resolve it for themselves. All we can do is share our own experience. Um, but, yeah, if we don't talk about it, uh, you know, I think we're doing a serious disservice to people who are really going through a hard time. Right. And the note that you make is that whether you talk about it or not, there are people struggling and generally by the time they come forward and want to finally, you know, ask or be open about their doubt, they a lot of times are already beyond the point of helping them, that they've already formulated their opinions because they've had so much of the critical side in their ear and very little to none of someone empathetic and yet leading with faith to talk to, that it's almost too late a lot of the times that these people finally come forward. And you almost have to just assume it's out there and begin to deal with it uh, because if you don't touch it... Trust me, it's a problem. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And, and, you know, I am hesitant to say, uh, you know, too late or, or things like that because I don't, I, I certainly don't want to put a value judgment on, and I, of course, people are going to disagree with me on this, I know, but, uh, I don't, I don't want to, and I, and, and I'm certainly not suggesting that you're doing this, uh, but I think that, that, um, that's it, it, unfortunately it can come across, uh, uh, when we say, oh, uh, how do I want to put this? Um, that if someone leaves the church that oh we we really need to help them or we need to um that there's uh that that we should have intervened as, as if as if they had some sort of i don't know uh right. problem like there was some problem with them um and i and I, so i'm hesitant to 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 frame it necessarily that way uh because i think that you know there probably are some circumstances where someone um, may be better off outside the church uh, for whatever reason. And I think that that is an opportunity for us to show faith. Um, you know, if I can diverge just a little bit, on my mission I had a really interesting experience where we were teaching this this young man. Actually, wasn't too young. Uh, and he, uh, he, he had some mental challenges. Uh, he was uh, some intellectual challenges, some learning um, disabilities to be certain. But when we talked about spiritual things, when we talked about the Book of Mormon, when we talked about things, boy, everything changed for him. He was so focused and so uh so convinced that that this was the the right thing to do that that he wanted to get baptized so badly well i was you know i didn't i didn't quite know what to do because um it was clear to me that if he got baptized uh, there's a very good chance that we'll, he would never be at church again. I mean, he couldn't drive, uh, you know, all sorts of things, right? So this was at the time when President Hinckley had, had come out with, uh, with, with a real effort to, to make sure we retain converts and, and, and that type of thing. So I went to my mission president, and um, I actually asked my mission president to interview and to do his baptismal interview because I said, look – you know, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the right thing is to do here. I told, you know, my president exactly what my concerns were. And I'll never, I'll never forget what happened. So my, uh, mission president interviewed him. Uh, and afterwards I, I went in to talk to him and he said, you know, Elder Payne, uh, I, for this young man, um, he was, he came into this world to be baptized and that's, he's done. That's it. Uh, that's what the Lord expects for him. So let's, let's baptize him. I said, well, you know, he's probably never going to come to church. He said, that's, I know, that's fine. Uh, you know, he, he, he came here to get baptized. 
Um, and so we had the baptism, and, and you know what? I, he's never, I, to my knowledge, he's never been back to church since. But I learned a really important lesson um, that sometimes we need to trust God uh, in in um, in how He leads other people, even if it doesn't fit with the systematic program that that we are taught to think everybody needs to go through, right? Like baptism and the temple and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's not to minimize that and that's not to excuse or, or anything like that. But but if someone is led out of the church or they choose to go in a different path, um, I think we always have to be open to the possibility that our Heavenly Father is, is doing something with them for some other purpose. Um, or, you know, maybe it's just psychologically healthier, better for them to, to, to have some separation for a while or, or, or whatever it might be. So, um Anyway, so I, I I do think that that you know people struggle and uh, people people question, and if if we can if we can discuss those things honestly and openly, it makes them realize that they're not alone. That that, that having doubts is not abnormal. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. Um, and by listening to the experiences of others and hearing others talk about these difficult issues, um, it can sometimes plant ideas in them, and then they need to formulate for themselves a reason to to be a Latter-day Saint, right? So everybody has to decide for themselves, why do you want to be a Latter-day Saint? Is it because of a spiritual experience you had, or or you know, there's a myriad of reasons that, that people may want to, to remain in the church despite their doubts. So um, we need to, to create an environment, here's, here's what I want to put it, we need to create an environment where people are free to do that. Uh, without undue pressure and without feeling like they're being judged. Right. I, and that kind of leads into the next question, which is, as you talk about giving people this flexibility, what, what's your current relationship with the church? Uh, well, so I, I'm involved. Um, I am fairly active. I could certainly be more active. Um, so I, I, I attend um, and I enjoy it very much, have the elders over from time to time for dinner. Um, my wife is Buddhist, so, uh, you know, sometimes I, I go to temple with her. We, we're very good friends with a, uh, with, uh, uh, a Buddhist nun who's attending the University of Washington here. Uh, so, it, you know, I, I, I have a very positive relationship with the church. Now, that doesn't mean I agree with everything the church does or says or, or whatever, or everything a leader does or says, but I love Mormonism. I love the LDS church. Uh, and I recognize that it's full of people who uh, are people just like me who make mistakes and who, who do all sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, for myself, uh, I, I, I almost feel, uh, how do I want to put this? I almost feel bad, um, putting a burden on the bishop where he would think he needs to worry about me. You know what I mean? Um, because, uh, bishops have, like, a lot to worry about. Uh, and right. so, you know, I'm, I'll sit here and I'll, I'll, you know, attend and I'll do service projects and whatnot. And, and, you know, but Bishop, don't be overly concerned about me. I'm fine. You got bigger, you know, you got bigger things to worry about. People that are having, you know, struggles with drug addiction or, or finding their next meal or, or things like that. And, and in comparison, you know, to me having a faith crisis, uh, I'd rather have the bishop, uh, you know, worry about those things uh, than little old me and and you know my my unique situation. Because the fact of the matter is, I am cho- I ch- I have chosen to remain a member of the church, uh, and so I know exactly what I'm what I'm in for. I know that I am uh, on the margins. Uh, I know that my beliefs are are very heterodox. Uh, well, to the extent that I have some metaphysical beliefs uh, that so. Um, you know, I, I understand my position there, and I I don't want uh, church leaders um, to feel pressured to try and accommodate me or to. No, I know what I'm in for, right? I mean, it's I, I know that things are going to get said at church that are kind of funny sometimes, and that you know this or that. Um, and you know, so I, I think that people 
I, and this is easier said than done, of course, but I think that sometimes people who want to maintain a relationship with the church, and but they also want to uh, maintain a, a marginal position, meaning that their beliefs or their or who they are is is, is just kind of out of the mainstream. Um, I, I think that, uh, that that you just need to recognize that position. That if you choose to be a member of the church and to be involved with the church, while at the same time being a little different in your beliefs and your approaches, I think that, that you, you number one need to have respect for the church uh, because you are choosing of your own free will to be involved with it. No one's pressuring you. Uh, now, of course, I'm sure there's situations where family pressure and all that. That's, sure. that's a different thing. <laughs> um, right. But in my case, no one's pressuring me. Uh, you know, so I choose to do it, and you know, I just take it, you know, for what it is. Um, and I, I don't want to be accommodated. I don't want people to have to bend or feel, you know, whatever. And so, uh, you know, that that's kind of how I approach it now. But no, I love Mormonism. Uh, I love I love the LDS Church. And like I said, that doesn't mean I agree with everything that, that goes on in the church or what what this leader says or that. You know what? They're just men like like me and and like everybody. And and you know, we don't always agree. So that's just the way life works. And uh, if I were to quit every organization that I had a disagreement with well I don't I wouldn't have any friends right I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't have a job I wouldn't uh, wouldn't have gone to school I mean organize that's just inherent of being a member of an organization I mean so, sometimes things are going to happen that you disagree with or you don't like and if you choose to remain then you just kind of got to roll with it yeah that's good that's beautiful I want to finish off the last question and I want to I want to preface it with something but the question's going to be uh, with your fair paper if you could describe pastoral apologetics and I want to preface it with page 15 of your paper in the middle paragraph just the first sentence and the last sentence, which I think hits at the heart of it, and then I want you to expound on it. You say, we must never, and you put the nine italics, we must never make the doubter feel stupid, unwelcome, unworthy, or unwanted because of their doubts or disbelief. And then the last sentence says, take doubters at their word, respect their views as you would have them respect yours. And so uh, go ahead and elaborate. What is pastoral apologetics? Yeah, uh, well, I, I pastoral apologetics in my mind is... Um, is really taking what Peter uh, had to say at, at face value. Um, so if you look at 1 Peter 3, um, which is the, the standard scripture that's used to, to justify, I did use the word justify, but to essentially you know, uh, say that apologetics is a worthy enterprise, um, it, it talks about uh, being able to give an answer to those um, who question the faith that is in you or the hope that is in you, right? Uh, Peter didn't say, uh, give a complete metaphysical breakdown um, with all sorts of empirical evidence about why you believe in the resurrection. Um, you know, he, he said, share, why do you believe what you believe? I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to. And in my experience, Mormons are not Mormon because of some intellectual exercise, right? Uh, they don't sit there and, and study and reason out uh, from history or whatever that, that okay, this, this empirically is the true church, therefore I'm going to be a Mormon. No, people, people don't do that. Uh, I think of, you know, my, my members of my family, right, who really have no interest in, I don't know, I would say the intellectual study of Mormonism or the academic study of Mormonism. But, man, what, you know, why do they go to church? It's because they, they love serving people. They love being Relief Society president. They love to take, you know, uh, meals to um, to someone who has just had a baby. Now, of course, they believe in the church. They have that testimony of, of, of the truthfulness of it. But is that really the reason that they that they go? I mean, sure, in, in part, of course it is. At the root, all of us have a spiritual experience that, that drives our religious activity. But I think that we can't let the intellectual understanding of Mormonism um, overshadow what's, what I think really matters, what's the essence of Mormonism. Uh, and so... 
pastoral apologetics focuses, in my in my estimation and, and the way I think about it, it focuses on the reasons why we are Latter Day Saints. And I think that if members of the church can really think that through, why am I a member of the church? Am I going because I feel it's a sense of duty? Uh, uh, if I don't, I'm going to go to hell. You know, or what, or if I'm not going to be in the celestial kingdom, I mean, what are the reasons that people go? Um, and I think in in a, a majority of cases, people are going to say. Uh, I go because I feel the spirit at church. Uh, I go because I like to serve and be served um, because it, it, it is, is an opportunity for me to, to emulate the Savior. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever the reasons might be, um, I don't think that people go to church or decide to be Mormon for purely intellectual reasons. And so, therefore, uh, I think one, one way in which I would, I would say traditional apologetics falls short is that when someone expresses a doubt – about Book of Mormon historicity. And they've gotten to a certain point where they're feeling open enough to just come out with it and say, you know, whew, like I, you know, I'm relieved to finally get that off my chest. I would say in most cases, they've kind of already made up their mind, right? They, they, they've already decided that, hey, you know what? The Book of Mormon isn't historical. So at that point, uh, I don't know what good it does to try and convince them of Hebraisms in the Book of Mormon or Chiasmus or to give a, um, Oh, I don't know, some other explanation of why the Book of Mormon is, is plausible. Uh, now, I, I'm not saying that those things aren't appropriate. I think that those are very valuable. One of my good friends is Mark Wright. He's a professor at BYU, a Mesoamerican um, expert. He fully believes in the Book of Mormon, uh, you know, and, and he has done some, uh, some, ab- some apologetics, but he, he, he always is, is uh, very, um, how do I put this? He's, he's very committed to his academic uh, uh, training, and he, he wants to make, like, you know that 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 Stella that's always put out there. Um, that might not be the right word. Where everybody says, "Oh, this is Lehi's dream." Right. Uh, he, he he's given fireside after fireside after fireside explaining why that's just not true. Right. Why that that picture has nothing to do with Lehi. It has nothing to do with whatever. Because he tries. He wants to dissuade people of what I would call bad apologetics and give them good information. So um, interestingly, when I first met him and I kind of talked to him about some of these these issues, and I and I cite this in my at the end of my paper. Uh, you know, he said, "Well, Seth, my my life goal is to convince you uh, that of the Book of Mormon's historicity." And um, and of course, he did it in a joking way, and and you know, just very you know, lighthearted and, and whatnot. But what I what's what so impressed me about that is that I could tell that the Book of Mormon really meant something to Mark. Uh, I, I know that the scriptures mean something to David Bokovoy. He's another good friend of mine um, who is also a biblical. He, he, he's a, a Hebrew Bible expert. Um, and you know both of them have expressed their love of the scriptures, uh, their their appreciation for the gospel, uh, and it's that example that inspires me um, and reminds me of of what I appreciate about being a Latter Day Saint. And so I think that's the essence of pastoral apologetics. It's not trying to convince me, and I'm going to use myself as the example. It's not trying to convince me that the Book of Mormon is historical. I may or may not come to that. I may come around to that at some point. I don't know, right? I mean, I'm not going to say I won't. I mean, who knows what will happen in the future? Um, but it's not trying to convince me of something where I've already kind of made up my mind. It's really just showing me love, uh, showing showing me that regardless of what my personal opinions are, uh, that I'm still considered um, a member of the church and in fellowship with the saints. And uh, it, it helps remind me of why uh, I want to be a part of this uh, of, of this church and, and a part of the Mormon people. So um, I think that's that's uh, pastoral apologetics. It's really it, it's it's expressing to people the 
the spiritual reasons why we have the belief that we have. And when people hear that, they're not necessarily going to say, oh, well, then that's my reason too. But it's a reminder to them, and it causes them, I believe, to think and ponder about, well, why is Mormonism important to me? Or maybe it isn't important to me. Who knows? I don't know how someone's going to come down, right? But it, but by expressing um, our our faith in those terms about why it's really important to us, um, I think it, it, it's it's it spurs that inner conversation in other people, um, and I think it's that inner conversation uh, that eventually brings some peace and harmony and resolution to this uh, a period of um, of questioning and doubt. I mean, at some point you're going to come to peace with it, whether you leave the church or whether you decide you're going to stay a member, uh, whatnot. You're going to do it in different ways. Um, but you know, there are so many people, and, and like you, I've gotten emails from from different people, longtime friends, sometimes people anonymous, who, who say to me, man, I'm really struggling with, with this. I don't know if I believe this anymore, but, boy, I don't want to leave the church. How, what do I do, you know? And, um, you know, these people are looking for reasons to stay. They're not looking for, for an intellectual answer. Uh, and so what, what I inevitably respond to, to, to them is that, look, you know, just, just think about why you want to be a Latter-day Saint. Why, what, what is it that, that matters to you? And um, in a lot of cases, these people have decided to stay, and in some cases, they have they've decided to to maybe take a break for a while or to to leave altogether. But um, but that again is what I consider to be pastoral apologetics. It's it's expressing uh, to people in faith and kindness why our religious beliefs, why our religious faith matters to us. I love that. I, I think it's important, you know, as you're talking about that, that we that we recognize that sometimes to refute the criticisms of the church at all expenses, we need to realize that maybe the better approach is to meet people where they are and to to just let them know that there's room for them. It, it reminds me a lot of Elder Uchtdorf's talk in conference, which I think he did exactly that, which was to say, hey, people have questions. Some people leave. For those who leave, you know, more power to you. Uh, we miss you. We wish you were here. For those who want to come back, please, there's a place for you. And if you have doubts, no big deal. Just come along and, and we'll worry about those later. And uh, it sounds a lot like what you talked about throughout your paper. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. You know, just take people, you know, trust what they have to say, you know, and uh, and just, just work with people as they are, not how you wish they were. Awesome. Seth Payne, thank you for being on the podcast tonight. Thank you.